ready. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. To the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Thank you for the Outstanding Ohio Show. Hosted by my daddy. Hosted by my daddy. Hello, thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. Today is episode 65. And my special guest is Travis Irvine, who is the Libertarian candidate for Ohio governor, and he is also a media entrepreneur with a variety of interests and expertise that he'll be talking about today. So, Travis, welcome to the show. Hey, Ron. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, I know we're going to get a lot into, and I just shared with you in our little pregame chat, some of the interests that I have in, in bringing you on the show and, and giving you a platform to speak. Uh, but before we get into that, can you tell the audience a little bit about your background, where you grew up, what kind of home you grew up in, uh, and what your educational and career path has been up to this point? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm from uh, Bexley, Ohio. It's actually uh, where the governor's mansion is. So I always tell people I'm going to save uh, taxpayers' money on the U-Haul already, first and <laughs> foremost. Um, but I went to school here, uh, graduated as valedictorian, uh, went to Ohio University to get my degree in uh, communications with a focus on video production. I then, uh, while I was there, I actually made a feature-length movie uh, about killer raccoons. It was the first uh, undergraduate-produced feature-length film to actually get a distribution deal. So at uh, 21, 22 years old, um, I went ahead and started my media company then with my uh, college and high school buddies. And uh, and from there, then I actually went to work uh, for a nonprofit in the Bahamas uh, for about a year. Tried to make a movie down there, failed at that. So like any good broke millennial after college, I moved back home with my, uh, my parents in 2007. Um, and interestingly enough, my parents and the neighbors that I, I grew up around were dealing with some problems with City Hall. And the local uh, college here at Capital University, in fact, like, as Capital University was essentially buying up homes and uh, colluding with City Hall to get them rezoned so they could knock down the homes and um, and build uh, uh, dorm rooms and things like that. So that's the year I decided to get politically active. I'd always been interested in politics uh, until then. I'm, I'm told even as a kid I had an independent streak. I was the only kid that voted for Ross Perot in my third grade mock presidential election in 92. So um, so sure enough, I got involved in 2007, ran for mayor, and um, we actually made a documentary about it called American Mayor, which uh, your listeners can check out on Amazon Prime. It is available there. And I think what we showed is that even though I did not win, spoiler alert, um, you can still have a, a positive impact on your community by just getting involved. So not only did I save my neighbor's homes, but a lot of my ideas for cutting spending from our very wasteful city budget, which had been bloated by a mayor who had been in there for 30 years, giving all his friends jobs and things like that. Um, uh, essentially, you know, a lot of my ideas got implemented. So it was a very successful first run, even without being a win. And so I decided to stay involved from there. Um, I went on to work in Capitol Hill in 2008. Um, up until that point, I, I really did consider myself a Democrat, like a lot of millennials who grew up in the Bush-Cheney era. Um, I was very against the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, I was very against the Patriot Act. Pretty much everything that happened on 9-11, which you know, kind of changed the world forever. Um, I was very uh, against the Republican administration and how they reacted to it. So I thought I was a Democrat until that point. And lo and behold, 2007, uh, 
was running for mayor, I remember checking out a, a Republican presidential debate. There's there's this little congressman from Texas. Yes. Yes. <laughs> who's anti-war and pro-civil liberties and anti-drug war, and I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. An anti-war Republican, you know, up until this point, I didn't know they existed. And my friends told me, well, that's Ron Paul. He's a libertarian. You should, you should check it out. So I would say, you know, in 2008, I gave the Democrats one last try uh, working up on Capitol Hill. And um, after that, uh, you know, I think I think my biggest starstruck moment was when I saw Ron Paul walking around the, uh, the halls of the Congress there. And, and I kind of knew. I was like, all right, I think I'm going to stick to my independent guns here and, and join the Libertarian Party. So I ran... For U.S. Congress uh, in the 12th Congressional District with the Libertarians in 2010. Um, at that time in Ohio, we had very good ballot access, um, very ample. Um, and we had a full statewide slate of candidates. We had congressional candidates like myself in most of the districts. And uh, I was proud to get involved. And I remember, you know, um, being, I think I was 27 years old at that point. And, you know, what I like about Libertarians is we kind of end up being right in the long run. You know, um, I was warning everybody about a $16 trillion debt under a Democrat president at that time, and now here we are approaching the $22 trillion debt under a Republican president. It doesn't really seem to change no matter who's in charge. Um, I also remember at that time uh, talking about how uh, the government shouldn't be involved with marriage. I was uh, you know, very much with that libertarian idea that uh, the government shouldn't uh, tell you who you can love or marry, and... Um, you know, I remember Republicans thought I was crazy because uh, they, because their socially conservative views, and even Democrats were giving me guff about it because they were for civil unions at that time. Uh, you may recall, and lo and behold, by 2015, it was the law of the land that the government uh, cannot uh, be involved with the institution of marriage in, in terms of who can get married and and things like that. So, uh, the, our ideas continue to win. And that's why I'm still proud to be part of the movement. Um, and just, you know, to recap the last six years, um, I got my degree from Columbia Journalism School in 2012, went on to work for the Gary Johnson campaign that year. And then uh, 2014, our gubernatorial candidate, Charlie Earle, here uh, in Ohio with the Libertarian Party, uh, was actually kicked off the ballot by the Republicans, by Kasich's cronies, because uh, they were threatened by his Tea Party support. He was also a former state rep, so he was he was a you know very respected uh, candidate. And so they did what Republicans usually do, and that is uh, well, they just removed him from the ballot, and we lost ballot access in 2014 as the uh, Libertarian Party of Ohio at that time. So I did the only thing I could do. I fired up a statewide pack called Central Ohioans Countering Kasich. It was a, an anti-John Kasich pack. We got a lot of support from both sides on that one. And then in uh, 2016, I worked for the Gary Johnson campaign once more uh, from Maine to Alaska. And, uh, you know, again, talk about only growth in this movement. Uh, the, the rallies were even bigger than 2012. The campaign was even more well-organized, and I was proud to be a part of it. And I'm even prouder of the fact that Right here in Ohio, 25% of the millennial generation voted for Gary Johnson, and, and, and that's with all the media and money working against them. So that's kind of how I see millennials voting, and that's how I think our movement continues to grow, is because millennials, you know, the million-dollar ad buys, we don't have TVs. We don't watch TVs. We are looking for candidates who reflect our view, and I think that is very much the Libertarian Party. 
So a couple of things I wanted to draw out from there, Travis, because in the first one, and, and, and there's a lot of detail that's to be sure, and you've kind of touched on it, what I would call the silent majority of Americans or not so silent, that they often complain about having only two choices because there's just not exposure, those kind of things. Talk about, because I, I know it's on your website, you just touched on it here, and you mentioned Mr. Earl's difficulties. Talk about the challenges that Republicans and Democrats put up in the way of roadblocks to get ballot access. You've not been able to debate the candidates, by and large, uh, from the two major parties. Can you speak to a little bit about the, the roadblocks with that and how how the Libertarian Party and other parties have to work around and with the system just to try to get access? Yeah, I mean, you did uh, touch on a great point there, the fact that um, – yeah, we are the not-so-silent majority. I mean, the majority of Americans want a third party or even more than two parties. Uh, the majority of registered voters right here in Ohio are independents. That's why we're such a swing state. You know, they usually go one way or the other, but at the end of the day, they're independents. And so, you know, as long as we have, uh, you know, well-funded uh, candidates and ballot access, um, we could get our message out there and start winning. It's certainly happening in other states, um, in states where they – don't have the roadblocks that we have here in Ohio, um, they, you can see, I mean, we have elected libertarians in New Hampshire, Nebraska, Texas, New Mexico, uh, Nevada, California, uh, just now uh, this year, Tennessee. Um, and then, you know, it's not just local level, county level, but also state level at this point. We got, after 2016, everything's changed. We got Republicans and Democrats who were elected as, as such, and then they switched to be libertarians. So, um, the roadblocks here are serious, and I think really what you saw, I mean, 2012, I remember we had uh, two of Gary Johnson's biggest rallies in the country right here in Ohio. That was Cleveland and Cincinnati, and I was honored to uh, MC both of those. And Gary Johnson, this Ohio was one of his favorite states to come campaign because we really had it together. We had a good organization, and we were looking to build off that in 2014, and Lord knows we almost did it. We could have done it if the Republicans didn't change the ballot access laws, you know, uh, first they did the minor party ballot access law known as the uh, John Kasich Re-Election Protection Act in 2013, <laughs> SB 193. It redefined how minor parties could retain ballot access. Basically, um, in a governor's race like mine or a presidential race, a minor party candidate has to get 3%. So it is vital for me to get 3% this year for us to keep ballot access for the next four years. Um, in 2016, Gary Johnson did get 3%, but he was on the ballot as an independent, so it did not count towards libertarian results. Um, you know, of course, we went to John Husted and then the courts, but everything is run by Republicans, so they weren't very helpful towards us uh, that effort. Um, and then, yeah, with Charlie Earl in 2014, he was kicked off the ballot for a technicality. Um, we essentially went to the courts to say that uh, – SB 193 couldn't be enforced until after the 2014 election, so the Republicans did the next best thing for them and, and took off our governor candidate entirely by enforcing a signature technicality that had never before been enforced. So it's pretty hard to get 3% the governor's race when you don't have a candidate. So those were the roadblocks they used then. And then what that did was that put into effect the, the signature, the petitioning requirement for a minor party. Um, Essentially, what we had to do this year to become a party again 
has turned in 1% of the total votes cast in the last election. So that's 55,000 ballot signatures that we had to turn in. We turned in 102,000 just to be safe. And this whole process cost us over $200,000. I mean, what kind of minor party has that kind of money to, to spend? I think we have about a tenth of that just for my campaign. And I can only imagine what we could have done if we had that for actual campaigning as opposed to just ballot access. So um, so that's our case here with the Republicans. But, yeah, look, it's all major parties. In New Mexico, when Gary Johnson joined the Senate race down there, the uh, Democratic Secretary of State tried to enforce uh, line uh, party line voting, where you just walk in a booth and vote for one party as opposed to candidates. So it doesn't matter um, who's in charge. They all seem to try to just want to hang onto their power, and uh, and they feel that minor parties are a threat to that, and that's unfortunate because you know at the end of the day, politics should be about people and policy, and uh, what you've seen with the major parties is that they've made it about power. Right, I I couldn't agree more. Uh, you mentioned Ron Paul, and, and he was a pivotal point in my thinking as well. Uh, who are some other libertarian influences that you, you, you read about or you listen to pretty regularly? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, um, yeah, Ron Paul is a big one uh, for sure, um, definitely until 2010. And then you kind of saw he helped inspire the Tea Party movement. Um, I don't agree with everything Rand Paul does, but I am glad Rand Paul is – I've been elected and is a voice of reason for most of the time in the Senate. Um, I really like uh, two congressmen actually on our borders here in Ohio, Justin Amash from Michigan and Thomas Massey from Kentucky. They've kind of uh, uh, represented the Liberty Caucus in, uh, within the Republican Party and in, in the Congress. And I'll just note that they actually uh, work uh, quite often with some progressives, uh, some progressive-leaning Democrats in the Congress. I actually wrote about this uh, as a journalist for Huffington Post in 2013. Uh, Justin Amash and Thomas Massey have worked uh, multiple times with people like Jared Polis from uh, Colorado, who's currently running for governor there as a Democrat, uh, Tulsi Gabbard, who, of course, was a big Bernie uh, Sanders supporter. She's out of Hawaii. And what these guys do is they form something called the Fourth Amendment Caucus. They're the ones who almost defunded the NSA in 2013. Right. They are the ones who led the effort to uh, not go to war in Syria. You know, I remember um, Obama almost, you know, to Obama's credit, he was going to go to the Congress to get approval to go to war in Syria in 2013. But to Congress's credit, uh, the progressives and the libertarians rallied up the votes to, to be against the war. Um, so, you know, I'm very encouraged by uh, things that I see, you know, really areas where progressives and libertarians can work together. I mean, that's something I saw in 2016 as well with Gary Johnson's rallies. We had plenty of Bernie Sanders supporters in the, in the crowd. Um, and, you know, it's okay to not agree with everything. I, I you know, I respect, look, <laughs> heck, look at Bernie Sanders' record. He's worked with Ron Paul and Rand Paul uh, when it comes to auditing the Fed. He's worked with them on opposing the wars. Um, two congressmen who voted against the Patriot Act in 2001 were Ron Paul and Bernie Sanders. So, um, you know, I, I, I appreciate where we can work across <clears throat> the political uh, divide, as libertarians can do, and, um, and you know, kind of get things done um, in a rational way. And, and yeah, I don't know if... if even if they don't call themselves libertarians or don't have elves by their name, 
uh, there's a lot of politicians who agree with the ideas that that uh, that we're putting out there. Agreed. But something I wanted to ask you as we get into your platform because it's it, it's very interesting. I, I if for for the person who doesn't know what libertarianism libertarianism is. Uh, it, it's it, it's a very unique way of thinking, but a very logical way of thinking if you dive into it. Uh, as a governor, what how would you use the nullification tool? Because you've talked about federal overreach. How would you use nullification? Do you have any ideas regarding that? Yeah, I mean, uh, the Republican state legislature already wants to nullify um, federal gun laws. So um, I would certainly work with them on, in that uh, way. Um, you know, that's one of the few areas where my liberal friends uh, don't agree with my libertarian ideas. But at the end of the day, I am pro-Second Amendment. Um, you know, libertarians were, were for uh, guns. Uh, we're just against people using them to hurt each other and, or take each other's stuff. And that includes the government, frankly. Right. Um, so I would uh, work with them on that. And also, um, I really think we need to nullify federal health care laws. I, uh, that's a big part of our platform, too, when it comes to uh, John Kasich's unconstitutional Medicaid expansion, which, again, I'll talk about another way where I can work with the Republican state legislature better than Mike DeWine or Rich Corgi could. Um, I want to roll back uh, Medicaid expansion, and it's not because I'm some monster conservative who doesn't want poor people have health care. It's just that I recognize, like a lot of libertarians, that Medicaid and government run healthcare is the least efficient and the most expensive way to get all these folks healthcare. The best way to do it is to crack it open to the free market. Uh, you know, there's so many graphs and charts out there that show that, you know, certain things that the government have gotten involved in over the years, all these industries have gotten more expensive and the products become uh, less accessible to, to people in the free market. You know, you look at things like cell phones and TVs and cars. These are now more affordable than they were 10, 15 years ago. But if you look at college education, health care, and, and housing, um, a lot of these areas, you know, they're, they're way more expensive. And certainly health care falls into that realm. So I want to nullify federal health care laws, and I want to allow Ohioans to buy health insurance across state lines. We need a more competitive, robust market. Um, for that and the way we have uh, that for, for other insurance industries. And uh, I also agree, actually, with uh, an idea that Jared Polis, the Democrat I mentioned earlier, he's putting forth in Colorado. It's actually another idea where Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz agreed in a CNN town hall, and that's that uh, Americans should be able to buy uh, prescription drugs from Canada and other countries. Um, right now they're, they're not allowed to do that, so that's another federal law that you know, they can't seem to get done in Congress in D.C., so let's go ahead and do that here in Ohio. So what what would, if you can go into a little more detail, because that, that's a big one, and it could be the biggest one, right, in terms of the budget impact and, and those kind of things. Uh, what, what needs to be done legislatively to open up competition across state lines? Because I've heard Rand Paul talk about that as well and, and some of the other free market things what what has to be done legislatively to make those things happen and, and allow the marketplace to open up well basically you just write it into uh, any law that rolls back medicaid expansion that's what i've uh, made clear on my platform is again i don't want to just cut off these seven hundred thousand ohioans that are on medicaid now uh, due to the expansion you don't you don't want to just 
cut him off overnight. That's actually a Ron Paul uh, policy as well. He, he was always all about rolling back um, these policies over a period of time. So right, right. Basically, any piece of legislation that rolls it back, um, we need to have uh, those in there. It just essentially uh, cracks open these these uh, federal laws and just says, you know, it's, it's kind of like states' rights. You know, it's just like, all right, our citizens are allowed to buy health insurance from any anywhere they want, not just Ohio. Um, and uh, and same deal um, with uh, as Jared Polis is doing in Colorado. Um, you're essentially just uh, you know putting it into putting it into those the state law that your citizens can can buy prescription drugs uh, from Canada and from other places. So it's really just about getting it in there, getting it signed. And then, really, if the federal government comes after us, you know, hey, uh, hey, President Trump, you know, I'm a millennial libertarian governor, and um, this idea is a great idea, and it's working, and you can already see our citizens are benefiting from cheaper drugs. You know, if anyone's going to come after us, it's going to be the prescription drug companies and the, the health insurance companies trying to crack down. So I, that's a battle that I'm willing to have with the federal government. Right, and, you know, people... People hear this and they, they because th- there's so much propaganda about government needing to be involved. Travis, do you have any states that already have? They, I know they there's states that have nullified Obamacare. What what states are doing it well? That you've mentioned Colorado. What what states have a really good model in place where the markets have opened up much more than in Ohio? Um, I actually don't know that there there are any. Um, you know, most of the states that uh, nullified Obamacare have smaller populations. Mm-hmm. You know, um, uh, so you know, I I don't know uh, that anyone has necessarily cracked open this, this healthcare market the way it should. Um, that's kind of an area that I want us to be a leader in. And again, you know, in terms of other states that are doing it, that's why I mentioned Colorado because, as far as I know, Jared Polis is the only candidate. Excuse me, the only other candidate <laughs> besides myself. Who's talking about doing this? You know, again, it's an idea that Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz put forth in a town hall. They both agreed, um, at, you know, town hall on CNN last year, and, um, but then they don't do it. So um, right. let's do it in the states. You know, it, it's similar to the gay marriage or the the marijuana legalization efforts. It's like, okay, but the federal government's not going to do this. Well, we're going to do this in the states and and plead the states' rights and. You know, lo and behold, you start to see the dominoes fall. So I think if we did this in Ohio, Jared Polis starts to do it in Colorado, you'll see a lot more states uh, go our way. And basically, that would be good. That would be good that Ohio would be a leader in that in that field. One, one more question related to health care, because it, it is an economic supply issue, right? So any thoughts about loosening the restrictions and the regulations about the number of healthcare facilities that can be opened, and also in terms of higher education, increasing the supply of medical school programs and healthcare programs to increase that supply to help decrease the cost for the customer. Yeah, I mean, again, it's just all free markets. It's all free market economics. I mean, when you start to uh, deregulate this industry. And again, I've, I've said this in my Cleveland.com editorial board meetings and things like that. I mean, right now, the health insurance companies and the, uh, the pharmaceutical drug companies, they, they are writing the laws. They are writing the legislation. So we have over-regulated 
um, this, this entire industry. Um, but the regulations have been written by the people who are in charge. I mean, uh, it was no secret that Obamacare was written by the health insurance companies. That's why you had the individual mandate in there. It was a compromise between the government and the uh, the companies because basically the companies said, okay, we'll cover pre-existing conditions, but in exchange you need to make it federal law that everyone needs health insurance. And, you know, I was a, a conscientious objector. You know, I'm a freelancer. I'm a contractor. I'm self-employed. So um, I had a contract job with a corporation for uh, the first year that Obamacare, the individual mandate, went into place in 2014. And then after that, I paid the fee. I paid the, uh, the monthly fee in my taxes, and basically, uh, you know, because I didn't have um, health insurance. And, um, you know, when I had uh, – I was working a lot in New York, so I had my apartment there. And I had a conscientious objector doctor there who did not take health insurance. You walked in if you were sick. You paid 60 bucks flat fee. I could um, then, you know, get a prescription for the the cheaper prescription drugs if I needed them. I remember the, the biggest expense I ever had because I never really got sick. So, you know, my medical expenses were anywhere from 60 to 120 bucks a year thanks to not paying for the, the Obamacare health insurance that just, you know, went up every month. Um, my biggest expense was when I uh, hurt my knee playing soccer, and then I had to go pay $400 out of pocket for an MRI and 500 bucks uh, for a, a doctor to tell me what the MRI meant. Now, compare that with my sister who bought in to Obamacare, paid the, the monthly uh, uh, fee for, the, um, for her health care, and then watched it slowly go up every single year, every single month. And then when she needed it, when she hurt her uh, her foot playing soccer, it was $4,000 out of pocket for her. So they made a law that it requires people to have health insurance, and then the health insurance doesn't even do what it's supposed to do. I mean, this is just madness. I mean, it, you want to crack it open, we've got to deregulate the hell out of this industry. And, and yes, it goes down to doctors and what doctors can prescribe and and um, and who can be a doctor and, and things like that, you know. I, I really appreciate what Gary Johnson said about uh, the future is Uber everything, right? Mm-hmm. Here's a technology that could be applied to healthcare. You know, it's almost like you get on your phone, you find a doctor in your area, you see what their rating is, make sure they're credible, things like that. It's similar how we do Uber and, and Airbnb. You know, <laughs> what you see is. Uber getting challenged by the taxi lobby, right? The taxi industry, Austin, Texas. I, I'm not sure if they have Ubers yet, but you know, it's um, and so it's essentially technology is changing the market, and it's changing the markets and industries in several different areas. So anyway, I, I guess what I'm trying to say is healthcare should be um, deregulated, and and we should allow the technology to be applied in in terms of connecting patients to doctors, people to healthcare. Right now, the you know the doctors I've talked to, the biggest parts in their office are, are reserved for for paperwork, not healthcare, and that's a big problem. And it's all because of these big insurance companies, these big pharmaceutical companies, these big healthcare companies overregulating the market that they are essentially in charge of. Right, uh, build, building on that to go to one of the planks of your platform, talk. Talk a little bit more about additional tax and regulatory reform that you would like to institute or lead the charge on. Well, sure. The um, you know right now in Ohio, um, 
you know, love him or hate him, President Trump has given us a national economy that is booming right now. And, and a lot of that is uh, thanks to uh, the tax cuts and the deregulations that the Republicans have put forth. Um, what we need to do is do the same thing here in Ohio, because right now, comparatively to other states, our economy is stagnant. Our job growth is stagnant. Our wages are stagnant. So what I want to see is, you know, day one, I want to make Jobs Ohio transparent. It's not susceptible to an audit uh, right now. And Kasich's cronies are in there picking winners and losers. And we don't know what they're doing. Um, and they keep kind of saying that they've done this great job with the Ohio economy, but um, there's, you know, very little proof of, of what's actually uh, been improved. So what I want to see is not just um, deregulating more indi industries um, to allow them to flourish here in Ohio. That includes, by the way, the marijuana industry, medical or legal, um, the gambling industry, which we over, we've over-regulated that as well, um, the brewery industry, the distillery industry, um, even vape stores, food trucks, all these new industries and businesses that are popping up, they're all over-regulated. Um, and they're all overtaxed, and we need to allow these things to flourish. I mean, look what look at what happened when they just uh, allowed for micro distilleries to uh, get started in Ohio again. These businesses are taken off. So um, I think we need to allow these industries to flourish in Ohio. And then I'd add in, as a small business owner myself, um, we need to uh, keep cutting taxes and cutting regulations for small businesses that get off the ground. My sister just started uh, her small business last year. She runs a pie business, um, and uh, it's very hard, especially those first few years. It's very hard to get things going. So um, what I want to see is not just uh, more industries and more businesses coming to Ohio. Um, that's good. You know, They shouldn't only be coming here because Jobs Ohio made a deal with them, though, of course. Um, but we need to start embracing our innovation and creativity here. I keep hearing from people about the millennial brain drain. Why do millennials keep leaving Ohio? It's like, well, it's hard to do things here. It's hard to make a living and build a life here. So we need to make that easier and allow for new innovative businesses to, to start here and to stay here. Uh, something in the regulation environment that I would like to see dramatic reform in, and whether it's done by nullification, state deregulation, or a combination of, is the agricultural industry. Because, boy, that the 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 food the the farm to plate regulations and barriers that are there are tremendous and it, it's forcing people to farm in a very monolithic way with big soybean and big corn. What what thoughts do you have to improve the agricultural environment? Yeah, well, my sister actually before she started her pie business was uh, an organic farmer, so actually I do know that a lot of small farmers around here. Uh, at least in the central Ohio region. And, um, yeah, it, it's also very difficult. It's hard for them to compete. Um, I think right now you see even Trump kind of messing with uh, the agriculture uh, industry with the tariffs, right? I mean, uh, right now we're sitting on an abundance of soybeans here in Ohio, and uh, there's nowhere to, to sell them because of the tariffs and because of um, the federal government's meddling with the international market. So um, in terms of uh, small farmers, you know, um, we do have some tax credits here and there that are working. Um, I think we need to make it easier for small farms and family farms to flourish. You know, they can't just go to the farmer's market every week to, to make it uh, to make their, their farm sustainable and, and profitable. Um, so I, I would like to see, you know, and the same thing on, on many uh, libertarian fronts, a lot of we just need to find ways to, to 
cut taxes and cut regulations on, on smaller farms as well so they can compete and so they can grow. You know, I mean, uh, one of the success stories the last few years is down a, in a Creamville, a, a Snow, Snowville Creamery um, in, uh, down there near Athens, Ohio. Uh, they are, they're all organic milk. And they provided the milk for Jenny's ice cream. And Jenny's ice cream, of course, is the Columbus company that is finally uh, taking off and, and spreading to other markets. And um, essentially what we found with, with Snowville is uh, they couldn't grow as fast as Jenny's was growing. So, you know, these are areas where the government can kind of get out of the way and allow these small farms that do have a success to, to continue to grow and, and play bigger ball in a bigger market. Agreed. Uh, something that affects farming families, and you talked about the drain and people moving out of state. What about the death tax? How would you abolish that, reform it strongly? What are your thoughts? Oh, the estate tax, that, that has already been abolished um, here okay. in Ohio. Okay. Um, and so I would keep it that way. But I will just note that, you know, here in Bexley, the, the estate tax, we got a, a lot of mansions and things here. I, I don't personally live in one yet. Um, but um, it is a funny story. The estate tax saved local governments uh, for years and years. So it is interesting that uh, Kasich and his cronies went ahead and slashed local government funding and then also killed the estate tax because that's what really has made uh, put the burden on, on taxing back on local governments. But, um, you know, either way, I'm for it because I, I, like, uh, I like the idea of cutting taxes. And, uh, and again, like I said, you know, in our, in Bexley specifically, we had a lot of areas where our government was actually, um, you know, too bloated and we did have to get our budget under control. And, and we did that, um, with, you know, a lot of different ideas. So, um, anyway, but yeah, I am against the, uh, the, uh, estate tax for sure. Okay. And most libertarians are, and I'm sorry, yes. um, Ron, but we are, um, uh, over, uh, yes. um, I just want to make sure we, uh, I don't know if you had – did you want this to be an hour or uh, – Maybe if I could ask one more area of policy that you can clarify yeah, your sorry, position. Sorry, i long answers, but – No, no, that's fine. Uh, education, both secondary and higher ed, what are, what are your thoughts for reforming those? You've got quite a platform mention on your website. Yeah, um, and, and again, all, all answers, you know, I, I'm just giving you – short versions, definitely check out our website at irvineforohio.com. We've got very well thought out policy positions and very proud of our policy team with the Libertarian Party and with our campaign. And, and essentially what you have in Ohio when it comes to the primary education is that over 20 years ago, the courts found our educational funding model uh, unconstitutional. Um, the fact that we go to property taxes uh, every year in, in local municipalities to fund our schools, but not every single one of these properties is necessarily uh, benefiting from the schools. Um, so, uh, you know, that was found unconstitutional over 20 years ago, but nothing's been done by Republicans or Democrats. Um, so, you know, we need real reform in how we fund our education, um, and we also need real reform in how our schools are accounted for. You know, ECOT uh, is a perfect example. The ECOT scandal... Uh, took, you know, gosh, $80 million that we know of, probably even more uh, when you count it up over the years, of taxpayer dollars going to this charter online school that wasn't even doing anything. Uh, the, the students weren't even learning, and, and it was just money being taken from the taxpayers of Ohio because 
Republicans were getting bribed by the econ chairman. So um, what we need is, is not just reform in how we fund our schools, but we need reform in terms of how they are accounted for. Um, standardized testing, I think that's one area where Cordray DeWine and I uh, all agree, as well as teachers and parents uh, all agree. Standardized testing is, is not effective. It's too much. Um, but, you know, we also need to respect uh, school choice, and I want to respect parents' choice. With, you know, again, with the, the, the funding model that we have, if you're a parent and you don't send your kid to the public schools in your district, if you choose to send them to a private school or a charter school or even homeschool, uh, you're essentially paying twice. Um, or, you know, you're paying for things that, uh, that you're not benefiting from. So, um, you know, I know a lot of homeschool folks. I know a lot of people, I have friends who work at charter schools. I know there are models that work, but we need to make sure that we keep rewarding the models that work and the, the choices that work as opposed to things like ECOT uh, that don't. Right. Uh, la last question I had for you, and this is, it's, it, it's dealing with politics, but it's more about things get going on in your area of journalism, you know, your background. What are your thoughts on Project Veritas? Oh, um, I used to work for Project Veritas. Is that um, right? Okay. Yes. I, I was, a um, after Columbia Journalism School, actually, it's kind of a funny story. I, I do like telling stories. Um, while I was at Columbia, uh, James O'Keefe received an angry email from one of the Columbia Journalism professors. So he came into the school at one point um, uh, and looking for the professor. You know, he had a camera crew with him. And uh, he didn't find the professor, and all my uh, fellow students and teachers started videotaping James O'Keefe. And the headline became uh, O'Keefe gets O'Keefe <laughs> um, in, the, in the local New York papers. And here I, I didn't know who, who James O'Keefe was at that point. But I remember for the rest of the year, um, everyone was like, look out for James O'Keefe. He could pop up at any minute, right? Um, and, uh, and I had no idea who he was. But then 2012 uh, come, rolls around when I'm about ready to graduate. And I'm at the Libertarian uh, Party Convention in Las Vegas. I meet a guy who actually works for James O'Keefe and says, I need to link you guys up. I think you work really well together. And I'm like, oh, O'Keefe, yeah, that name sounds familiar. And then I meet him, and we get along great, and I actually became a, a hidden camera investigative journalist for James uh, all the way from 2012 uh, till the summer of 2016. Um, kind of went through the ranks as a field reporter to a segment producer and things like that, so... That's one of my uh, secret uh, journalism jobs, but now that I don't work there anymore, I, I am allowed to at least talk about some parts of it. Uh, beyond that, I signed an NDA, and there are other things I can't talk about. But sure. yeah, I don't have a problem with James. He's a self-made journalist. I, I think his organization's got a lot of good people. Um, you know, I don't agree with him politically on many things, but that's okay. You know, I think uh, one of the problems of our hyperpartisan times, and you can argue that James O'Keefe has made those worse, um, but, you know, as a libertarian, I have friends all over the political spectrum. Uh, I enjoyed uh, going uh, on James's sailboat. You know, we would go out on sailboats at outings, and it doesn't really matter on the issues where we disagree. It's, it's more fun to talk about where we do agree, and where I agree with James O'Keefe and his work is exposing fraud and corruption and, and hidden cameras. Let's face it, hidden cameras don't lie. Um, <laughs> you can't really doctor some of this footage as much as people think. A lot of this is just pure corruption and people admitting to it when they don't know they're being uh, videotaped. And as far as I'm concerned, legally and journalistically, 
uh, that's allowed in uh, in one party uh, consent states. That, that's what I find really interesting about it is the what quote unquote establishment journalism. They really mock his tactics and talk about that it's not ethically sound. But journalists have been going undercover forever. I just I, I find it very fascinating that that there's it's it's kind of like you talked about in in these other industries that are kind of trying to suppress and new industries that are growing there's just this expectation this is our territory you can't come in we can't have competition like this it's a very interesting thing to see yeah well and you know at um, columbia journalism school we had an ethics class and one of the big things the big things you learn about is the the uh uh, the infamous, I think it was Food Lion case, where ABC spent months and months in these grocery stores in North Carolina, secretly taping all the the, the disgusting things that uh, were going on in this grocery store with the meats and the products and you know things that were tainted or not fresh or put out again. And it was this big. I remember it as a kid. It was in the nineties, and it was this big expose. Um, and they got in a ton of legal trouble for it. And, uh, and, you know, even then they were finding that some of the producers were in cahoots with unions that were having problems with, with Food Lion and, and things like that. So it is interesting. It's like, um, and, you know, James is in the same boat. It's just like, um, you know, it's just a matter of who's doing the investigating and, and who they're exposing. And then, the, you know, then politics tends to become part of it. At the end of the day, you know, James O'Keefe, ABC, all of them caught people doing bad things on camera. And uh, when you do that, you've got a story. Um, so as far as I'm concerned, that's journalism. If you're exposing fraud and corruption, that's journalism. Great. Well, Travis, if you could hold the line, I'm going to sign off here for a moment. Uh, really wanted to thank you for taking the time to talk to the audience today. Uh, you shared your website, uh, and we've got election coming up, so... Any last words for the for the audience that may be inclined to vote for you or take a look at you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the website is IrvineForOhio.com. You can learn uh, even more about our po- uh, policy platforms there. And, uh, I, again, I would really encourage people to check out the Libertarian Party in general. You know, whether or not you like me as a person, um, this year is about voting for the party uh, because our ballot access is so critical uh, for the next four years. So, um, uh, you know, again, I, I, I see a real shift in our movement. I think there's a lot of growth happening, especially with the millennial generation. So I urge everyone to vote for the future, vote Libertarian, and vote Irvine for Ohio this year. Thank you for tuning in to the Outstanding Ohioan Show. This was Episode 65 with our guest, Libertarian candidate for Ohio Governor Travis Irvine. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.